fourth watch starts now. Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on The Fourth Watch Radio Network. I hope everyone's having a blessed week. Tonight's going to be the third part of the Occult Awakening series. We'll be delving into yet another obscure area of occultism. We've got a lot to cover, so let's go ahead and start the adventure. Submitted for the approval of the Fourth Watch Radio Network, I call this episode The Occult Awakening Volume 3, Order of the Vampire, with special guest, Doc Marquis. The world is getting deeper and deeper into occult teachings and practices each and every day, and we're seeing the conditioning and the social engineering being utilized to pre-program people into not only accepting these practices, but also lusting after them with a passionate desire. The journey tonight takes us into the dark realm of the vampire. Just like with the witchcraft and the werewolf practices, the practice of vampirism has a unique and interesting history, as well as a clouded public image. We're going to go ahead and go to the line with my good friend Doc Marquis as we explore what this area of the occult is all about. Brother Doc, welcome back to The Fourth Watch. How are you tonight? I'm doing quite well. How are you doing, Justin? I'm pretty blessed. I uh, like I told you before. I'm in the I'm in the recording studio. I got my hot coffee and I got my friend Doc Marquis on the phone. So praise God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm along the same line. I've got you on the phone. I've got my coffee going. And let's face it. We're going to have an interesting topic of discussion. We are, and it's been a very interesting two weeks so far. If anyone's listening to the show tonight and you haven't heard the other two parts of the Occult Awakening series, we started off with the Order of the Witch, then we went to the Order of the Werewolf, and tonight we're doing the Order of the Vampire. And these are some very relevant topics as we live in a culture where there's so much fascination surrounding the occult. Going by the prophecies, the end times, you know, when the... Antichrist is on the earth for seven years, we find out that the entire world is going to be handed over to him through the occult. It will be the mainstream religion. You know, Christianity will be outlawed, and, you know, it it only makes sense because the Antichrist doesn't want competition, obviously. So his religion will be the mainstay. Well, in order for that to happen, we have to see now, in our day and age, a resurgence of the ancient occult belief systems higher than in all of recorded men's history. And that's what we're seeing right now. The occult is awakening with a vengeance, and it has to in order to see the prophecies of God being fulfilled. So I'm not surprised at this in the least. But our brothers and sisters have to be aware of these facts, since the church is for the most part sleeping, we have to wake them up so that they can help us save as many people um, before it's too late. Okay, so let's go ahead and jump right into the to the topic for tonight. We're talking about the Order of the Vampire. So let's go ahead and take us back to the origins. Where did this myth 
originally come from. And we'll call it a myth because it goes back so far. But we are going to dispel some of the myths at the same time, bring out the truth about what a vampire really is, where they got started, how they interact in society today. The truth about as far as, you know, these creatures that have these fangs and drink blood of human beings or animals, that goes all the way back during the Middle Ages, um, um, during the Spanish Inquisition. You see, back then, we didn't have the sophisticated um, embalming um, practices we have nowadays where, you know, you have to empty the body of all its fluid and replace it with a formaldehyde solution so that it's preserved for a couple of weeks, okay? And because of that, when they buried bodies, a lot of times what would happen, and remember, this is in the Middle Ages now, so many ages, food was scarce, the water was tainted, and, you know, it was a disease-ridden area. I mean, let's not forget, you know, the bubonic plague or the black plague, you know, had struck, you know, Europe that time, and people was just dropping all over the place. And so what would happen when a body, a fresh body, would be, you know, just thrown into a sack, if they had a sack, and they would just, you know, dig a hole and throw them in the ground. Now, these weren't deep holes. It was shallow holes, usually a foot or two at most. Um, wild animals in search of food would actually um, smell out, you know, these fresh decaying corpses and dig them up. Now, a lot of times um, um, they'd be chased away by, you know, um, the, the cemetery um, caretakers. You know, they'd be discovered ahead of time. Now, an interesting thing would happen. The caretaker... Um, a lot of times wouldn't see the animals, and when other people saw this happen, not understanding how the body works, let alone how or why it's decaying, they would actually see blood coming out of the sides of the, of the mouth of the, of the newly um, departed person there. <laughs> and, well, stories started passing around that, you know, the person really wasn't dead. There was fresh blood on his face. Well, yeah, that happened because of um, the way the body is actually, you know, expelling all the fluids and such out of itself. And nowadays, well, that's done immediately. And it says they drain the body of all the fluids, put in, you know, a formaldehyde-type solution, and the body remains fine for weeks. But back then, they didn't have that sophisticated method. So because the body, supposed, the person supposedly just died, well, he can't have died. You know, there's fresh blood on his mouth. So what's going on here? And one thing led to another, and eventually, it, um, that dead body became part of the living dead who went out um, in search of victims so that he could drink and feed on the person's blood. That's the long and short of how the myth came along. But, you know, it, you know, like all other myths, um, it evolved. You see, um, oh, in the Slavic regions, um, usually around Romania, um, there was a particular um, vampire. It was known as Nosferatu. 
Oh yes. Okay, right. That's the old. That's based on the old um, 1922 German um, horror movie on Nosferatu. Now Nosferatu um, comes from the Greek word. It's actually a Greek word from um, what is that? Nosophorus, which means plague carrier. You know, Nosophorus becomes Nosferatu, and in the old Slavonic. Um, Translation, as it says, it, it becomes Nosferatu. But basically, it was a plague carrier. It was a creature um, that um, would, would only come out of its coffin at night. And it wasn't one of these romanticized, gothic, well-tailed, English-speaking vampires we have nowadays. No. They depicted... Um, the vampire for what it was. It was, uh, its teeth was gnarly. It had two little small things in the front, like a bat, you know, um, and hence this is why the, um, vampire could transmute into a bat because bats are bloodsuckers. And so with the, um, um, vampire teeth, well, let's add to the story. He becomes a bat also. And, um, he's a horrifying demonic looking creature who also has some sort of mesmeric abilities. You know, he could, you know, look at you and, you know, you would have to do whatever he said, you know, a form of hypnosis. And this is where you get um, the myths and the legends and stories about the vampires, but it didn't change hardly, you know, over the centuries. It was still a demonic-like creature, as I said, the fangs, um, slept in its coffin at night, drank blood, had the power of mesmerism. It was just a nasty creature. None of that changed until um, around the 1930s when we first had Bella Lugosi playing Count Dracula, a very suave, debonair-looking um, um, Romanian um, figure. He was just, he, he had the powers of the vampires. He could change into blood, you know, into a bat. He could drink blood. Um, but now he's become a, a sophisticated creature. He had, he was a smooth talker. He had a marvelous accent. And, you know, he could just wow the audience. Now, as I said, he's becoming sophisticated. Um, but he really didn't become, shall we, um, and, and there was, he was somewhat romanticized back then. And, um, but, but I'll tell you this much, when Christopher Lee started playing the role of Dracula in the movies and during the 1950s, you know, he wasn't much of a, of a, yeah, of a romanticized figure then. No, he was just, you know, a nasty creature. The, I would say the real time in history when, um, this permanently changed, where the vampire is no longer just a nasty creature, but he's a romanticized figure and all this, one you could empathize with, would have been in 1966. The first horror soap opera in history that was televised in America would have been Dark Shadows. And again, there's vampires in this, werewolves, um, witches. There is more occultism in um, that series than most people would understand. How about... The Vampire Diaries, then. Series like this, especially since it's geared towards the teenagers and those in their 20s, and the story keeps going in um, more intricate 
detailed events surrounding the occult is introduced into the series. You see, the one thing about anything of this nature, you're going to get a good lesson in the occult. In the, I should say, in the occult religions. How much of it is true? Well, you have to watch the series so you can see the truth from the lie. And in this particular case, a lot of the witchcraft, especially, that is used in this series is actually the real stuff. Hollywood, you know, has a lot of, you know, literary license when it comes to things like this. But a lot of the occult practices aren't genuine. And this is what concerns me, because this type of series victimizes young, impressionable minds and tries to get them to join, um, whether, they, whether their intentions are to get them involved or not. It's still happening that a lot of these impressionable people are joining various occult groups because... Well, this stuff is the occult. It's romantic. It's good. You can have a lot of fun with it. And so they end up joining various occult groups, whether it's, you know, in witchcraft or the vampire movement or the werewolf movement. And this, they, they, they just don't see, obviously, because it's not really portrayed in these series, the hidden horrors that happens as a result of becoming part of these groups. And it's a well-known established fact in criminal justice that a lot of people have been murdered um, as a result. And we're just scratching the surface of the Hollywood portrayals of the romanticizing of vampirism, werewolves, witches. I mean, we could go, we could do a 24-hour show breaking down all the different types of shows and movies that have come out over the past. But we want to bring a few of these into play because they're modern or they're popular, they're historical pieces that many people can relate to. And it's progressed. It started in a certain fashion, and now we have it in a completely repackaged scenario. And that's the dangerous thing we see. You can trace the historic roots of this easy enough. And the earliest, you could go as far as um, the first living embodiment, we would go with, um, um, as I said, I, I'd go with the movie, the 1922 one, or Nosferatu. But remember, that's based on what happened during the Middle Ages when these disease plague-ridden bodies were um, not going through what we would call any form of cremation nowadays, um, embalming, I should say, excuse me. So, of course, the myths and the legends revolved around that. Unless you want to go further back, just like we did last week, you know, to the story of Lilith, supposedly the first wife of um, Adam. The reason I don't like to go back to Lilith, and I know you don't either, because we know that if Adam really had a first wife, then the scripture would have given us an understanding of that. I, I mean, that, that's my view, at least. Right, you know, but remember, that's just, again, part of stories by Jewish rabbis who said it wasn't Eve, it was Lilith. And Lilith eventually got kicked out of Eden, and she became the mother of all demonic creatures because she made it with demons after that. Yeah, I mean, there's no question, though. That's, that's a fanciful story, but that's all it is. But, you know, there's no question in my mind that there's a demonic entity that is going by Lilith that people are, are having encounters with. I mean, I'm not going to question that because so many people around the world have said they speak of this Lilith, uh, but we also know that demons are liars, 
and a demon can appear and, and claim to be something just like that. I mean, we know that's how they operate. So I'm not questioning the fact that there's an entity that's showing up calling itself Lilith. But when we get back to what the occult claims is their origin or even the Jews, uh, what the Jews claim or the rabbis, whatever you, however you want to word that, you know, even if they're claiming it, that doesn't mean that it's scripture, folks. And I mean, we have to be very careful when we start to investigate these types of topics that we balance everything out with history, but most importantly with scripture. And that's what we're doing right now. And I don't, in case there's any misconception, last week, neither Doc nor myself were condoning that story of Lilith as a historical fact. We were talking about... Just a story, and that's it. I mean, that's just like any other story, you know, kid's story or what have you. There might be a grain of truth um, in it, but um, the rest of it is garbage. As it says, yeah, um, Adam had a wife, but it wasn't Lilith. It was... was it was e. But I need to go ahead and throw something else out there. And, and I'm going to get off topic just for a second. But I got to say this. And I mean no disrespect to anybody listening right now. But there is this popular theory going around. And I'm sure some of you listening probably believe this and subscribe to this. But many people believe, even even Christians, they believe that Eve gave birth to Cain from Satan. That she had a sexual relationship with Satan and she gave birth to Cain. Therefore, Cain was the, the original Nephilim, the first Nephilim. And I just want to go ahead and set this thing to rest, okay? In the Bible, in Genesis, it says that Eve conceived and gave birth to Cain. Now, I'm, I'm not quoting it. I'm just telling you what it says. You can go back and look into this. She says, I have conceived a child from the Lord. Okay, it says it specifically in the scripture, Cain was given to Eve, okay? She gave birth to Cain, and it says specifically she received a child from the Lord. That right there, if you put your faith in the Word of God, the Bible, that right there debunks any possible potential of Cain being the first Nephilim. I just need to get that out there. I'm sorry to get well, off I'm topic. Glad you said it because as far as I'm concerned, what you just said couldn't be truer than true. If God says it, that's it, ladies and gentlemen, there is no argument the point after that. I don't care what anyone has to say. As far as I'm concerned, if that's what God said, that's it, folks. Don't try to tell me otherwise at that point because... Again, it's not going to work with me. I go with God. Now, if it's not in the Bible, if it's something that's not in the scripture, you know, what we can do is we can we can investigate it. We can look into it. But the second that it contradicts scripture, we have to decide up front, especially everyone who does research on things. You have to make up your mind before you even start researching. When you come across something that goes against the word of God, you have to know right then and there it's not true. Because the word of God is infallible. I don't care. Exactly. And there's people listening right now who aren't believers. And I mean, no disrespect to you. And and quite frankly, I'm honored. I get emails from people telling me that they really enjoy the show, but they're not believers. And okay, great. You know, I'm honored that you listen to the show. And I'm not here to criticize you or call you names. I love you just as much as I love all my believers that listen. But we just want to, you know, coming from a biblical perspective, we can we can look into the history and the myths and the legends. We can investigate, but the second something goes against scripture, boom, we're going to tell you that it's not true. And I'm sorry for going on a rant. Well, that's okay. You should have more rants more often. But you know, uh, there is another story. And I'm, okay, one last thing about Cain. There's another belief that says that Cain had a twin sister named Lilith. Okay, now there's uh, no I know the variations. And there's no mention yeah. of her in the scripture. I mean, come on, we're talking about the first two children born were Cain and Abel. 
why would it have not mentioned Lilith in the scripture? And one gentleman told me, and this guy was very scholarly, and I believe he, I mean, he's, he's a believer, but he's got some strange views based on his research that's not biblical, and he said that Lilith was, was Cain's twin sister. And then he went on to discredit himself by saying that Cain is, in fact, Lucifer. I mean, <laughs> I'm like, what? Yeah, now we've entered the twilight zone. Yeah, and at that point I said, okay, um, I don't think we can continue this conversation because it's not it's not profitable for either one of us. So, exactly. Okay, now, okay, we're going to get back on track here. <laughs> oh, boy. But, you know, this is, this is cool because we like to talk about things that cause people to think, and we want to challenge everyone listening to investigate what these what these claims are with the Scripture. So, now we've talked a little bit about the vampires and, and the myths and all that good stuff. But now we want to talk about the cult, the occult practice, the modern day occult practice of vampirism. I just want to read a couple claims here from the Vampire Society. Okay, now this is their official literature. It says the Vampire Society is a private and exclusive society of real vampires and their disciples. They say we are seeking others like us and those few who desire to become like us. The Vampire Society provides fellowship among vampires and helps its members in their search to understand why they are vampires and where we came from. Now, they explain who they are. They say true vampires are those who are possessed of full vampire blood. They are the vampire of lore and legend, although the subject of much misunderstanding. Vampires can only be made of those with whom this blood is shared. The sharing of vampire blood and the making of a vampire is accomplished through a secret and occult process known only to those who have become master vampires. Now, I'm going to stop right there. I got some more I want to cover, but what what do you say about all this? Rubbish. Where do these people get off? Are they on LSD? I mean, now wait a second. Think about this for a second. Um, these people claim that, um, um, and part of the story states that if you're bitten by a vampire, or if you're bitten by a werewolf, or if you're bitten by a zombie, you become one of them. Okay, that's nonsense. Because when you look at the true origins of vampirism, as I stated, these were plague-ridden, diseased people who was thrown on the ground and buried, and they weren't um, um, really alive. You know, they were dead, and they did not animate afterwards. It's only because superstition, myths, and legends started growing about because of, you know, those events we had already spoken of. Now, there are, now, now get this, this is what's really interesting. Um, when it comes to um, these people, um, with vampirism, what they claim, what they're claiming is, well, vampirism has a whole different venue now. There are some people, some genuine um, people who call themselves vampires. They're not really vampires, trust me. Um, who um, will drink blood from another person, but they say they always get permission first. Uh, since when did vampires ever ask for permission? So strike one: they can't be real vampires. They're asking permission. Second of all, um, do you know these people are doing the riskiest thing imaginable nowadays if they're drinking another person's blood? Because right now we have over 50 communicable diseases and half of them can't even be cured. 
Let's think about AIDS, for instance. And you want to drink someone's blood? It's unbelievable. Now, oh, oh, I know, but it, get, it, gets, it gets a lot more interesting. Um, to, to make it, um, shall we say, to make it more believable, um, um, a lot of vampires don't drink blood, but they now have what's known as psychic vampires. I'm glad you brought that up. You see, they don't feed on a person's blood. They feed on the person's life force. Supposedly, they're taking the actual life energy of their victim, draining them of it, and feeding off of it. Well, isn't that convenient to avoid drinking blood now? What a convenience. Oh, well, vampires don't drink blood solely. They now drink blood. The life force. Oh, please, give me a break. Well, let, let me ask a question, though. Let's, let's, I, I've got a question about this. the story like the myth. I've got a question about this. Now, obviously, I'm with you. My first instinct on the psychic vampire, it sounds like a cop-out. It's like, oh, okay, well, show me your superpower. Oh, well, um, you know, I don't drink blood. I actually suck life force. Okay, well, yeah, that, it sounds pretty cheesy. But here's just a question. And again, when we do research, it's fun to kind of play devil's advocate sometimes because it causes us to think. Now... We know that the unbelieving world, the people who are not filled with the Holy Spirit of God, we know that they are subject to curses. Now, in dealing with this, is it possible, and again, I'm asking you because you've got such a rich history in witchcraft, and so that's where this is a valuable question to you. In dealing with somebody who is calling themselves a psychic vampire, is it possible that they have some sort of ritual where they can suck energy out of people through a curse? No. Let me explain how this works. The number one greatest deception in the whole of the occult realm, no matter what your occult belief system is, and here it is, the greatest deception is there is no such thing as true occult powers. There never has been, never will be. Not one witch, not one Satanist has any of these innate um, psychic powers or whatever you want to call them. You're not born with them. You can't acquire them because they don't exist. And I'll illustrate this to um, really get you to understand what I'm saying. Do you have, um, oh, let's say a pen or pencil in front of you, Justin? Uh, yes, I do. I do. Okay. I want you to um, take that pen. Is it a pen or pencil? I've got a pen in my hand. Okay, take it in your hand. I want you to hold it up about two feet above the table. Okay. Okay, now just keep it there. Now, what if I was to tell you right now, I just levitated that pen in the air using my great psychic powers. Would you believe me? Absolutely not. Why not? Uh, well, actually, I'm holding it. Ah, how do you know you're holding it? Because my hand is there. I'm looking at it. You're looking at it. You can see your hand holding it. However, the vast majority of all people cannot see the invisible hand of a demon that would have been raising it. People with these psychic powers think that they're levitating or moving objects. They just don't see the demonic creature that's pushing it for them or lifting it up. Every single action in the occult realm is due to the follow-up action of a demon. Amen. It's the greatest trick in
non-existent. Remember the old magician's trick? They tell you to look at their right hand when you should be looking at their left? Yep. It's a misdirection. You think you're doing it, but you can't normally see the demon that's doing it for you. Everything is a lie when it comes to psychic powers. So when these people are trying to tell you we're doing it through psychic powers, that's a lie because they don't have psychic powers to begin with. They're summoning demons. Um, those people in those type of underground movements like the vampire movement, the werewolf movements, what have you, they don't realize that they are um, slowly becoming demonically possessed. And that the end result is, yeah, they, they may claim they acquired these powers, but they didn't acquire anything aside from a demon who's invisibly doing all these things for them. So that the end result, they never get saved and they end up in hell. Satan wants to make it look as if he's God and can grant you powers, but he can't because we don't have them to begin with. We never have, never will be. He tricks the person into believing you can get power from him if you follow him. And so it looks like you have um, psychic powers or some sort of um, occult powers because you're in witchcraft, Satan and voodoo, polyamorous, santeria, what have you. But that's the lie. The illusion really is you think you're doing it when every single follow-up action is done by a demon. There is nothing else behind it aside from the demon. And contrary to what people may believe, I don't care what you think, you're not controlling the demon. The demon is really controlling you. You just don't realize it. I want to go back to the Bible for a second because there's a story in the book of Acts chapter 16 and it really just brings all of this home because oh, yeah. we see a girl, a slave girl who had the spirit of divination. Now, the King James talks about a spirit of soothsaying. She was a soothsayer. Now, that means divination, the ability of, of receiving future events, seeing things before yeah, they happen. she could foretell the future or foresee it. Now, why would the Bible call it a spirit if it wasn't? It's a spirit. It is exactly. demonic. It I keep showing people these things throughout the Word of God. You know, Justin, a very important thought that person, a handful of Christians will ever know. In the KJV translation, the original 1611, which I go by, folks, don't even go there, don't try to argue it with me, okay? Um, there's 31,173 verses. In all of that 31,173 verses, a little bit more than 10% deal directly with the occult, um, how, what they believe, how they practice their rituals. I mean, I can go into this folks like Noah's business. Now, three, now that might mean more than 3,100 verses deal directly with the occult. Now, folks, that's enough verses to equal Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and half of Romans. Now, that's a lot of space. And I don't think God was taking up all that um, writing space for no reason at all. And when you look at these things carefully, as Justin just pointed out, well, you have a spirit of divination. Well, we also have what's known as familial spirits, don't we, Justin? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I like, you know, the fact that when you look at these folks very carefully, you'll find out the word spirit is involved so often. In other words, a fallen angel, a.k.a. a demon. Now, going back to the Vampire Society, this is really interesting because... They've got, they've got their doctrine listed out. And again, we're dealing with a cult doctrine here, but this particular doctrine got my attention. And I mean, it just, it stuck out and grabbed me. And, and I'm curious to get your, your feedback on this, doc. According to their doctrine, they say that some people say that vampirism originated in the mating of angels with mortal women spoken of in the Bible. Now they're making a reference to the Bible here in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter six, verses one to four in which they're trying to take the creation, the hybrid creation of giants, and try to make it sound like other things were created in the process, and that's not true. Now, they go on to say that vampires are the, speaking back of the, of the Nephilim and the fallen angels, they're saying that vampires are the spiritual and physical descendants of the Nephilim. They explain it by saying the angelic bloodline became diluted with time, and, and they say that many today possess vampire blood without even knowing it, although they know they're different. Now, what's interesting about this? And, you know, listen, I've had some people write me since the last week's show. Doc and I made some claims, and, you know, we're not, we're not pointing fingers at any particular person. So don't, don't assume that we're pointing fingers at anybody. We are trying to go out and expose some of the popular teachings. Okay. We, I need to make that really clear, but, there are people right now who are going around talking about how they got saved out of the vampire cult and that they were actually sleeping in a coffin. They were drinking blood. And one particular individual claims that he became a vampire upon drinking blood from an ancient one. He was convinced that he no, no, get this. And I'm going to give you a second to come back on this. But this particular person said, not only was I a vampire, but I got initiated because I met this particular fallen angel, and he says that he drank the blood of what he believes was a fallen angel, and he said instantly he felt his DNA change. Of course. Now, we're, we're talking about a guy who is, who's a Christian now, but this is part of his story, and I thought that was interesting that he said that. When I read this account off of the Vampire Society website explaining about the blood being tied back to the angels, the fallen angels. Okay, uh, Justin, have you ever heard of the, uh, the role-playing game known as Vampire the Gathering? Um, Vampire the Gathering is a role-playing play, game along the lines of Dungeons & Dragons. A lot of what he just said you can find right in that. And it was so popular that it was actually turned into a TV series. It didn't last long. But um, in, in the story of Vampire the Gathering... Um, there are ancient ones that if you get bit by them, you become a more powerful vampire than most vampires. You see, the higher the vampire, the more powerful you can become. And that's what he just described. Now, how he supposedly could feel a genetic change is only because of so-called demons. I mean, because he has no idea of the medical science behind what he was proclaiming. What's crazy about this is that when we do go back to Genesis 6, there's nothing in the Bible that states that a Nephilim can be created 
who was a hybrid offshoot of a fallen angel and a woman, there's nothing that says that they can take their blood and let some human, some mortal, drink their blood, and then that human turns into a giant. That That's not biblical. It doesn't work that right. way. It works with the legends. Remember, vampirism, people can drink blood, become blood, you know, not brought to the um, Spanish Inquisition and all that. It works with legends, but that's all it is, is part of the ancient legends. As Justin pointed out, there's not one verse, not even a word in the Bible, that would agree with the premise that you can drink the blood of a so-called vampire and be transformed into one. I'm going to take a step further. I'm about to really shoot this out. The giants were offshoots of fallen angels. Okay, so to to use their storyline here from the Vampire Society. Okay, well let's just say okay, let's let's call the giants vampires. Okay, well let me tell you why they can't be vampires because they died. But if they were vampires, then they wouldn't have been able to be killed. I mean, come on. Unless they were using wooden stakes. Seriously. Yeah, and we would have. And I think if if if, you know, with all the giants as mentioned in the Bible, I think there would have been a mention of you know a wooden stake that would have killed them. (laughs) If nothing else, David killed Goliath with a stone, not a wooden stake. Here's something that's pretty interesting. They go on to say that the vampire blood is passed on genetically. Okay, they say that those Uh whose veins it courses. (laughs) often display characteristics of personality similar to vampires. This is most widely expressed as gifts of psychic ability or paranormal powers, second sight, and telepathy. And they even say that a hypnotic influence over others, including clairvoyance, the ability to see spirits, and a natural aversion to sunlight. No, it's not supposed to be a natural aversion. Sunlight is supposed to destroy a vampire, period. And I would lay this challenge out. To anyone, any person in the vampire community who believes that there's psychic vampires, I challenge you right now to meet up with me someday. I don't care where it is. Let's just have plenty of witnesses because I want people to see this one way or the other. And you try to use your so-called psychic powers on me and drain me to where supposedly I'm going to collapse and you're feeding on me psychically. I challenge anyone. Anyone out there who believes that they can do it, you try it on this point again, Christian, I have news for you. You're in for a world of surprise now because I am not bragging when I tell you right now, you're not going to be able to do anything to me because I know who I am in the Lord. I know my position as one of his Christian children. And I can tell you right now, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. You don't stand a chance. Amen. But, you know, the reason that they're saying these things, they believe they have these powers, all these different powers and these different qualities that come upon them when they get the vampire blood in their blood. This is all part of the demonic deception. Doc and I have already said it before that when they take part in these rituals, these demons come and surround them and possess them and give them this false. They put on this show. It's it's like a little magic show. They get going back to the book of Acts, the spirit of divination. It's a real spirit. So these different spirits, these demons come in, they put on their show and they get everybody excited and they think that they're actually the powerful ones and they're not. They don't have any powers. Only the demons that's doing follow-up actions, making it look like they do. But now we find ourselves in the modern age where we have countless of these orders of vampires, these societies, these occult groups. And if you look into any of them, they all use the word occult 
occult power, occult knowledge, occult rituals. These are terms that constantly show up on the websites and the books. We have these groups, it's undeniable, we have these groups of vampires, self-professing vampires, we'll say, today. Some of them are even having their teeth shaved down to look like fangs. But the thing... Yeah. The thing Notice about- they have to have cosmetic um, alteration. I thought when you got bit by a vampire, you naturally grew fangs on the first time you, you rose from the grave. Well, yeah, if you're watching the Joel Schumacher films. This is a natural event. If they're descendants, if they, you know, get bit by um, an ancient and they're transmitted into a vampire, how come they have to go out and get their teeth, you know, shaved or have implants in the shape of fangs to make it look as if they're vampires? I thought it was a natural thing. What it is is these people are getting overpowered by these demonic influences, and they're going out, they're doing these things, they're buying coffins to sleep in. Yes, there's people that sleep in coffins. Oh, yes, that's plenty. I know them. Well, not all of them, but I do know some. Exactly. And what they're doing is they're following the myth. They're following and chasing after the myth. And the reason that they keep going back and doing it is because they feel powerful. They feel the demonic activity, the demonic presences in their lives. And I'll even take it a step further. There's different uh, hot spots in the United States. I know San Francisco is supposed to be a large vampire community. They've got nightclubs set up. There's an underground vampire community that I caution people against because I tell you right now, these are very dangerous people. If you try to reveal anything about what's going on about them, they will kill you. Mark my words, ladies and gentlemen, this is a very dangerous territory. And I caution people never, ever get involved in any of these things, especially if you're trying to get involved just to scoop a story. Let me tell you, folks, newspaper reporters who have gone underground have vanished for doing things like this, and they have never been seen again. So you be careful if you ever even consider doing something this insane, because as I said before, they will kill a traitor. Now, you've got two classes here. You've got two classes of these people, maybe more, but I'm going to break down two real quick. You've got the vampires, that they're members of these, these occult societies, and they go out looking for victims. They, they romanticize the victim. They try to coerce them into uh, some sort of demonic relationship. They bring them back, and then they've got their whole coven, if you will. I don't know what you want to call them. Their pack, their coven, their group. And they take the person, they sacrifice them in a satanic occult ritual, and then they drink their blood. And let me tell you, folks, once they drink the blood of this person, once they bite in and do however they go about doing it, this person dies. This person doesn't transform into a vampire and get eternal life. Okay, but they are sacrificing people to drink their blood because it's a demonic ritual that makes them feel powerful. And as Doc said, people drink this blood, the demons come in and start deceiving the people and give them these these fake feelings of euphoria. And then you have the other group. The other group are like the mainstream vampires. And this is pretty, this is disgusting. They go to these nightclubs, these vampire nightclubs. They're all set up in a gothic atmosphere. And they get involved in these clubs where when you come to these clubs, it's kind of set up like a swinger club. People go to these clubs knowing that there's other people there who will allow them to cut each other. Now, now brace yourselves. You go in, you start mingling with the vampire wannabes, and then you start cutting each other and drinking each other's blood. They have back rooms in these clubs where they drink people's blood. They don't do it just out in the open or out on the dance floor. No, they have rooms, antechambers in the back, about usually 10 to 12, 
um, where you, if you were to walk into them, yeah, you'd see other people drinking other people's blood. We're seeing this awakening of occult practice. Some of it's based on myth, some of it's based on history, but it's a merging of deception. That's what we see here. And people are chasing after this so-called eternal life. And that's what it all boils down to, especially when you start dealing with the vampire cult. What's more attractive than eternal life? Nothing. But what happens is people are going the wrong way. They're going after, they're trying to earn their eternal life by drinking blood of a fallen angel or drinking the blood of other people, getting more powerful. And this is what we see in the movies. But in reality, the only path to eternal life is Jesus Christ. And there's no other way you can achieve it. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's no steps to, to, to achieving it on your own. Christ is the only way, period. And so all these people practicing these things, they have denied the power of God. It just seems like there's so many people, so many Christians out there, and they just get so, so weird and, and just distant when you try to talk about this stuff. Oh, well, you shouldn't be focusing on this. You need to be focusing on God's grace. And, and you know, hey, listen, you know, we are supposed to rightly divide the word of God. Rightly divide it. That doesn't mean go and pick out the things that, that make you feel good. That means you have to expose what needs to be exposed. You need to teach what needs to be taught. And you need to rightly divide it as a balance. But you see, nowadays we have people that just want to hear the, the, the ooey gooey, the bubble gum, the candy coated, the grace, grace, grace. And it, it makes me... Well, that's because they don't want to become sold out Christians. They want to become, um, make me feel good Christians or feed me the um, fuzzy wuzzy stuff or, you know, whatever you do, don't you dare take me out of my Christian comfort zone by trying to tell me the facts. You know, don't you dare confuse me with those things. No. These people don't want to, you know, get involved with anything of the occult because it is too strange, too unsettling to their wonderful little Laodicean lives. And quite frankly, Justin, God forgive me for saying this, but I have had it up to here with them. Because they don't want to, you know, get involved really hardcore into Christianity. Revelation chapter 3 tells us that the seventh and last church age is identified as Laodicean. And in it, the um, major character of the Christians, and we're speaking this time and age now, <coughs> is that they're lukewarm. They are fence walkers. They will not commit to the left or to the right. And because of that, Christ said, I will spit you out of my mouth. You are absolutely no good to me. Because you won't commit one way or the other. I mean, think about this. But we're talking frontline Christianity at its dirtiest, where you're going to face off against demonic creatures that, you know, whose single goal is to literally rip you apart if they could. And yet, these people say, well, God has given us all power and authority. Really? Well, why aren't you using it? I've got to say this. I'm going to be addressing some things today in the Bible study segment about the power of God because I got an email. I was going to do this. I was going to do a whole show on this, but I don't want this person to feel singled out. But I got an email from a person. We'll just say a person. I don't even want to give a gender. But this person. person, Bob. Okay, we'll just say Bob. Okay. Bob sent me an email, and Bob wanted me to watch these videos. Apparently, God had told Bob 
that I needed to see these videos of how real hell is. These people who have died and gone to hell, they've come back and they said that there was all these people that were like Christian singers and all this stuff who had been, you know, in their own mind, they were proclaiming the gospel, but they're in hell. And Bob went on to explain that that he always gets uneasy when he sees Christians speaking about they're going to heaven when they die. Bob says that that's a big prideful thing to say and that Bob's heart is very troubled. And Bob was really concerned with my teaching on the fact that God has the power to keep you eternally secure. Bob was very uncomfortable and it seemed to me, and I even had several people read this, these, it was a quite lengthy email and I had several of my colleagues and my family members read the email and I didn't tell them my perspective on it. I just said, read this and tell me what you think. And apparently I was right on point with how I perceived it. And it seemed that Bob was telling me that I don't really believe in hell, that I'm basically teaching a damnable heresy of eternal security, that there is such a thing as eternal security, and that I needed to be aware how real hell is. And it sounded to me like I was going there. That's as I'm reading the email and Bob has been listening to my show for some time and, and enjoys the fact that I expose evil. But Bob is really concerned for my salvation because I've been teaching that you can be eternally secure in Christ. The power of God is strong enough to keep you. Now, I just, I'm going to address this a little bit more in the Bible study segment, but God has the power to keep you. It says that in the scripture. And Well, let me help you here for a second. In the Bible, when it's talking about salvation, it's always, not always, but you'll find that there's quite often prefaced with words such as eternal salvation, everlasting salvation, salvation without end. Um, excuse me, people, anything that is eternal or everlasting has no ending. It doesn't end. And with those people, what's interesting, there are people who say you can lose your salvation, right? And that somehow you have to get it back. Well, guess what, folks? That's called you have to work for it back. Amen. And that's contrary to Ephesians chapter 2, 8, and 9, where it says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works. Lest any men should boast. You can't work for this, ladies and gentlemen. It's either given to you by Christ, and it's eternal, or it's out the door. Because you can never work for something you never earned to begin with. You can never undo all the miserable, rough, and sinful acts you've done in this life. If you could, then when you got up to heaven, you could say, I did not need Jesus Christ. I made it up here on my own. Hence the part where it says, lest any man should boast. That's what man would do. He would, uh, man in his arrogance, in his pride, would say, I made it up here by myself. I did not Jesus, need Jesus Christ. I was that good at it. Horse manure. It is absolute horse manure. And, and again, you cannot I- undo not even one sinful act. And then there are those people who try to tell me that they now are living in a state of sinless perfection. Excuse me, wrong again. Once you sin at any time in this life, you are a sinner and you are condemned. 
like everyone else unless you take the free gift of eternal salvation through Jesus Christ. And once you have it, you can never lose it. Ladies and gentlemen, let me explain something. I've been saved for over 36, for almost 36 years. I've lived on both sides of the spiritual coin. I was an Illuminati Luciferian witch. I was raised in the Illuminati. So let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I know what evil is all about. I've seen both sides of the spiritual coin. I know what happens to the soul. It's, you know, as far as one way or the other, hell or heaven. I know if it's eternal or not. Because, and I'll tell you this much, ladies and gentlemen, think about this for a second. Your spirit can never die. It's eternal. It lasts forever. So when he tells you your salvation is eternal, it's everlasting, it never ends. Take him at his word for it. Don't listen to a person who's putting his own opinion in God's word, because if God wanted his opinion, he would have asked for it. And I'm gonna, let me say this, let me say this, and I don't want to go on too much of a tangent here, but this this is vital. This, you know, the most important part of the fourth watch, because at the end of the day, folks, we are not just a radio show, we're a ministry. The most important part of the fourth watch is sharing the gospel. Yes, we expose things. I believe that we balance things out here. But the most important thing is is disposing of the lies. And if you, first of all, I'm going to say this, and, and I've mentioned it before. If you're listening right now and you question the, whether or not you're going to heaven, I would have to tell you that you're probably not really saved. Because mm-hmm. when you get saved, you get born again, literally. You are born again. The old man dies. It is undeniable. You are then instantly filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a down payment. The King James calls it an earnest. It is an earnest, a down payment, and you are sealed unto that day of glory. I'm going to be breaking the scriptures out here as soon as I finish up with Doc. But listen here. I know people don't want to talk about it. They just want to tell me that I'm going to hell because I'm teaching this, and apparently this is a damnable heresy. And Bob didn't tell me directly, oh, you're going to hell. But Bob seemed to be real concerned for my salvation and put me on the same level as these so-called Christian singers who died and went to hell, who it was all revealed to these people who went to hell and came back. And let me tell you something else. Uh, There's a parable, okay? And there's a rich man who died, and he went to hell. And you know what? He asked God. He said, God, let me just go back and warn my family. Let me just go back and tell them how real this is. And you know what God said? He said, if Moses and the prophets weren't good enough for your family, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe you. And God did not grant that man the ability to come back from hell and warn his family. So any extra... And and let's not forget, let's not forget, Justin, the story of the uh, prodigal son. We know that there, um, there was this one wealthy man, he had two sons, one decided he wanted his fair share of his, of his inheritance, and he left and um, spent it all and wasted his life. The other son stayed and did a good work at his father's place and made his father proud of him. Yet, for all his sinning, when the young man returned, the father opened up his, heart, his hands and he greeted him. He held a feast because his little lost sheep had returned to him. This is a perfect story of how, ladies and gentlemen, no matter how much we sin, if you're saved, Christ is not going to reject you. He's going to open up his hands. He's going to welcome his little sheep back, and he's going to hold a banquet in your honor because his child 
files as a return. And that's not saying that he's giving your salvation back. That's saying that people backslide, they make poor choices. And unfortunately, folks, some choices will lead unto death, physical death. That's in the scripture. It talks about a sin that leads unto death. And I don't remember the exact place. You can Google it, sin that leads unto death. It's in the Bible. And what that means is that there are some sins that you might commit on this earth that will end up with certain punishment. You may end up in jail. You may end up dead. That doesn't mean that you're not saved. That doesn't mean that your salvation just disappears. I'm telling you guys, this is dangerous. This is a dangerous doctrine. And I'm going to be so bold right now and say that I believe this is a doctrine of demons that takes away from the power of God. It does. You're right. It does. It's meant to do that. It's meant to keep you in a state of fear and doubt to where you're always looking over your shoulder to where you have no security, let alone any boldness to go out and do what you're supposed to do. And that is to be unto, you know, doing your father's business, getting people saved. If you're afraid, you're walking on, you know, eggshells all the time. Oh, did I sin? Did I sin here? Did I do that? What were my thoughts? Was my words right? It, it keeps you in that medical round. You'll never get off because you're too busy worrying about, oh, if there has sin, I lost my salvation. I have to go back and work for it again. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that's the whole idea. It's a merry-go-round. It keeps you spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning, and you'll never get to focus on what really matters. No, I want to. I want to. I just want to say one last thing on this topic, and then then we'll stop on this. But here's the thing, folks. Go to the book of James. James talks about he he, he James talks about a lot of great stuff, but James talks about real faith, living faith, and false faith. Faith that is not real. That's not grounded in the word. And there's a warning about people who are tossed to and fro like the waves of the ocean back and forth on doctrine. And you can't do that. If you're one of those people and you're, you're back and forth on these things and you're letting people use one or two scriptures out of context to try to teach a doctrine, go back, read the whole chapter. Okay, read the surrounding chapters. Get an understanding of what that one verse means in context of the word that it was given in. I'm so tired of this. I'm so tired of people. And, and there was air, there, you know, I hate to say it, but I'm sitting here being accused of being prideful because I say I'm going to heaven. And then... Wait, 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 hold it. Stop. You're not being prideful. You are just convicted because it was Jesus Christ who told you, who told me that when we die, we're going to open up our eyes into the very presence of Jesus Christ. Amen. And you know what, ladies and gentlemen? That's not pride. That's fact, because that comes straight from God. This is God who told us what is going to happen. And you know what? It's not pride for me to accept it. I accept it because God told me that is his truth. And if God says it, that's it. When we get to the Bible study segment, I have got so much ammunition. I'm going to be drumming it off. And I, I'm going to encourage everyone to go and look into all these things, because if you're listening and you have been told that there is no such thing as eternal security, we are going to debunk that. We are going to debunk that with scripture, with the word of God, which is the authority. So stay tuned, because shortly we will be going into that. We've talked about some really heavy stuff tonight, and I know some people are going to receive it. I know some people are not. But I'm praying that everyone who listens to this show will realize just how real and just how dangerous these things really are. Yeah. People have no idea 
just how much fire they're truly playing with when they try to get involved in the occult, whether it's through, you know, actual witchcraft, Satanism, the religious aspect, or into maybe some of the offshoot practices such as vampirism, um, the werewolf movement, what have you. These things were all created by Satan to keep people from eternal salvation. And these things will do that if you allow them to deceive you into following them and to fall for the so-called romanticized version of these ancient stories and legends. Folks, the reality is you really do have a spirit inside of you. It's eternal. It does not die. Your decision is to whether you want to live for the rest of your days in a tormented hell where there is no escape. When I say you will be there eternally, I mean it never ends. And you have a choice to make, and it's an eternal choice. You need to choose whether you want to spend the rest of your days in an eternity of punishment or with an eternity with Jesus Christ. The choice is up to you. Last thing I'm going to say about this, there's a lot of famous TV preachers, and I'm, I'm just going to drop a name here because he, people are going to know. So many people puff up Billy Graham, you know, and, and I'm telling you, I've covered it before. He's nothing more than an Illuminati puppet. I've covered this in depth. I've made a video about it. But Billy Graham was asked about what happens when you die. You know, what, what happens to the non-believer when he dies? You know, and he's been back and forth. You know, sometimes he says, well, everyone goes to heaven. And, you know, no matter what you believe, you're going to heaven as long as you've, you know, tried to be a good person. But he said something about hell that just really ground my gears. He said, all that hell is. And he's not the only one who said this. Let me let me say that he. this is a popular teaching. They say that all that hell is, is separation from God. And that's the worst possible thing anyone could experience. I'm here to tell you that that's not what hell is. Hell is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is a place of fire and brimstone. Hell is a place of eternal torment. We never want to downplay what hell is here. Hell is very real and it is torment. It is fiery. It is burning. It is the worst of the worst of the worst. There's nothing that you can ever experience on this earth that will ever compare to one second of what eternal hell is. And I will not stand here and have people tell me that I don't know what hell is. That I don't believe that hell is as real as it is. I don't need to watch some stupid videos. Okay, I've got the word of God. And the word of God proclaims hell is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Eternally. Not just separation from God, friends. We're talking about a real burning torture chamber for eternity. And you can't undo it. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm getting fired up over here. That's all right. You're allowed to. So, Brother Doc, again, I thank you so much. You're in our prayers. We're really excited about this new series of DVDs coming out. And we are very excited to have you on the show again real soon. You bet. I will always come. You know that. Amen. And I can't thank you enough. Not only are you my colleague, but you're my friend. Most importantly, you're my brother in Christ. And uh, I'm blessed to have you in my life. So thank you so much, Brother Doc. And may God bless you and keep you until the next time we talk. Well, you take care, and God keep you and everyone out there now. All right. Goodbye. So the cat's out of the bag. If you've made it this far in the show, you know that tonight we're dealing with the security of the believer's salvation. 
We're also dealing with the power of God, which is alive and at work in the believer's life, which is working and perfecting us as we live a spirit-filled life. What a better night than this to talk about eternal life, seeing as we've been learning about a false hope of immortality and the vampire cults. So let's talk about real eternal life. I want to break out some key scriptures that solidify and proclaim the undeniable promise and guarantee of the true believer's security. This is one study that you will want to take notes on and pay close attention to these references. I've said it already and I'll say it again. If you're uncertain that you're going to heaven when you die, chances are you're not really saved. You've never been born again and you've never been filled with the down payment and the seal of the Holy Spirit. Of course, there is that slight chance that you are really saved and you've just been under some heavy false teaching that has chipped away at your hope in Christ Jesus. This just means that you're not taking God at His word and you're not testing every teaching to see if it's biblical or if it's not. There can be no contradictions in Scripture, friends. What we have are user errors. This is when we misinterpret the scripture and we come up with what seems like huge contradictions in the Bible. Let's dig into the scripture. John chapter 10 verse 27 through 29 says this, and this is Jesus talking. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Jesus also goes on to say, My Father which gave them to me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. So Jesus is calling the true believers his sheep. These are the real Christians he's talking about. We'll get into the fakes in a minute, but the real Christians are his sheep, and he is our shepherd. Then he said that no one can pluck any of his believers out of his hand. And it was so important that he didn't stop there, but he went on to say that God the Father is the one who gave us to Christ. And he said that no one can pluck us out of his hand either. So no one can pluck us out of Christ's hand and no one can pluck us out of the Father's hand. Now let's go to John chapter 6 verse 37. Jesus is teaching solid biblical doctrine here. He said, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. So if we truly come to Yeshua, he promises us that he will in no way cast us out of his family. John 3.16, let's go back to the foundational verse that so many people grasp onto as they enter into faith. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Yet we see another promise here of eternal life promised to all who truly believe in the Son of God, Jesus Christ Yeshua. John 10.28 repeats the declaration of security one more time in Jesus' own words. Jesus said this again. He said, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. So twice in the book of John, Jesus makes this reference. No one can pluck them out of his hands. What's that saying? No one can pluck us, the true believers, out of his hand. 
Then we get to John chapter 5, verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you. Anytime you see Jesus say verily, verily, he's saying pay attention. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. I don't see how anyone could try and pervert this solid foundational doctrine and these promises made by Jesus Christ himself. People can't accept the power of God's gracious gift. I don't get it. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is that powerful, friends. It paid for our sins. It gave us the ability to come into communion with God. And then it gives us the ability to receive our inheritance, which is eternal life. That's not a maybe. That's a definite. We don't maybe get eternal life through Christ. We definitely, we are promised eternal life. Let me take you to Romans chapter 11, verse 29. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. This is saying that God never repents of his gifts and callings for his people. Now, some people say, what do you mean God repenting? This means that God will never revoke or renege his gifts and promises from his children. Once God gives a promise, a gift, he sticks with it. He never turns back. He never turns in the opposite direction of his gifts. God is not an Indian giver. You see, as sinful man, we have a hard time accepting some of God's character because it defies the logic of our flesh. This has caused many issues with people interpreting the Bible over the years. You see, man tries to interpret the scripture based on what seems logical. While the rise of rationalism has been one of the downfalls of the church since the 18th century. You can look into this. Prior to the 18th century, let's just go to the 17th century for a second. It was commonly known that rationalism was a method of thinking that was merged with atheism. There's no place for rationalism when interpreting the scripture. The scripture is only open to one interpretation, friends, which is that of the Holy Spirit, who authored the scriptures himself. Now let me move over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. Who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Who has sealed us? God. Paul saying here that God hath sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. I want to remind you of the old colloquialism. I know you've all heard this. To seal the deal. You know, a salesperson will say, Oh, did you seal the deal? Hey, I sealed the deal. To seal means to secure. That's referring to securing the deal. To seal the deal, to secure the deal. So what we see here is to seal is to secure. This passage tells us that God has secured us and given us the Holy Spirit. He has secured the deal of our souls. Now, it's about to get real up in here. And I need to give a disclaimer here. I'm not coming out to attack anybody. I'm not going to sit here and try to start a fight with anyone. But I want to go ahead and deal with Bob's accusations. Of course, Bob isn't a real person. We're not going to disclose who the person is. But Bob is the name that Doc Marquis coined for this person that wrote me those those emails. And Bob said that he can't stand when he hears people proclaiming that they're going to heaven. Bob doesn't like that. And Bob says that it's purely pride. And Bob even went on to say that it hurts his heart when he hears anyone stand up and say, I'm going to heaven. So let's hear what the disciples had to say about this. 
Surely the disciples aren't being prideful. Let's have a look. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. John says this, These things I have written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. So he's addressing the Christians here. That you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. So John is writing unto everyone who truly believes in Christ. And he tells us that he's writing these things so that we may know that we have eternal life. Not that we may hopefully achieve eternal life, but that we may know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christ died and rose again once and for all, opening the opportunity to enter into eternal life if we so choose to accept Christ and his gift. And according to all the scriptures we've covered already, this is an irrevocable gift. Again, folks, John said he writes these things that we may know that we have eternal life. Now, what did Paul say? Let me take you to Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul wrote this, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So Paul's saying here that he's confident that the good work that God started in your life, God is going to continue it and complete it until the day of our Lord. Is Paul's confidence pride, ladies and gentlemen? Absolutely not. This is the word of God. Paul also wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, he said, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So let me remind you that grace is unmerited favor. That means that it's not earned. Your behavior and your poor choices don't earn or lose your salvation. These things can affect your earthly blessings, of course, and they can even cause you to have a shorter lifespan, but it doesn't buy or sell your salvation once you've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Now let's go to Romans chapter 11, verse 6. This is Paul writing again. He says, And if by grace... Then is it no more of works? Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. That might sound a little confusing to you all, but let me break this down. The second you start adding your works into the equation of salvation, it's no longer God's gift of grace, but it's now a religion of works. That's scary. Now, one last thing on Paul. In Philippians and 2 Corinthians, we see some interesting statements by Paul. In chapter 1 of Philippians, he says that for him to live is Christ, but to die is gain. This means that as long as Paul lives, he will serve Christ and do the work of God. But for him to die is gain, because he knows where he will be upon leaving this earth. This begs the question, where will Paul be when he dies? 2 Corinthians 5, 8. Paul writes, we are confident. Again, folks, we see Paul using the word confident. He is confident in the things of God. Now, Paul says this, we are confident, I say, and willing, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So what is Paul saying here? Paul is saying that when we as believers leave this body, we are then taken to be with the Lord in heaven. Again, this is if we are really saved. There is no pride in any of this. What this is, is pure confidence that Jesus Christ and his word 
are true and all his promises are solid and unfailing and unchanging. The last point I want to mention in this discussion is the belief that people leave the church and they lose their salvation. They decide they don't want to do the quote-unquote Christian thing anymore. Or they decide that they are now atheists. That's a popular thing to hear these days. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, we see a pretty interesting statement. John said this, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest, that they were not all of us. Now let me break this down. It may sound like a riddle or a haiku, but it's really not. It's pretty easy to understand. John is saying, the people that appear to depart from the faith, or they appear to renounce their faith, so to speak, he says they were never really saved. They were never of us. And he said that by them leaving, that was them manifesting the truth that they were never really saved. Now, nothing about tonight's Bible study should be taken as an attack on any person. If you're listening right now and you might have had some of these beliefs, tonight's study was not to attack you. Tonight's study was intended to encourage everyone in their faith. That is to say the real believers who are truly saved and who have entered into the grace of God. This study was meant to encourage you. This was meant to declare the hope and the security that we can have in Christ and in Him alone. Not by our works, but by the grace of God, friends. This grace is received only by faith in Yeshua. Tonight's teaching was a correction on a false doctrine that's permeating the Christian community and it's causing much debate and even division among the brethren. You see, Satan will come in and he will try to weigh us down with questioning our salvation sometimes. But we must be equipped and ready for battle at all times to combat the spiritual attacks with scripture. It's time to have total confidence in the finished work of the cross and knowing that in Christ we have promises of eternal inheritance so securely guarded that no one, no thing can take it away from us. Don't get this teaching twisted. There is no license to sin. And when we sin, we should feel guilty because we have let down our holy and righteous God. But if we're really saved and we walk with Jesus, those sins are forgiven, friends. That feeling of guilt should be remembered in times of temptation. And that will encourage you to keep your eyes on Christ Jesus. And just because you've gone down the aisle, you've gone down to the front of the church at the invitation, and you've said a sinner's prayer, or just because you've been watching some preacher on TV that's led you through the sinner's prayer, that doesn't mean that you're saved. You have to truly repent and be born again to enter into the saving grace of Jesus Christ our Lord. Praise God for His power to save us and keep us saved, ladies and gentlemen. Just take a moment to praise Jesus for His amazing gift of grace. This is a gift that is irrevocable. He has made promises to every believer that this is a gift that lasts forever. It can never be taken away and you can never be plucked out of Jesus' hand. Thank Him for the promises that He spoke in His Word, guaranteeing our eternal life. Praise God that He loved us yet while we were still sinners, and He had a plan for our lives. This week, I want to challenge you 
to meditate on these promises and share this blessed hope with some of your lost friends or family members. As you continue to grow in the knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ Yeshua, as your faith is strengthened and you live a life that is pleasing unto the Lord. If you're listening right now and you haven't accepted the Lord Jesus Christ Yeshua as your personal Lord and Savior, and you haven't accepted His holy sacrifice on the cross to pay for your sins, it's absolutely impossible for you to have a solid understanding of His Word. It's impossible to find protection from the demonic realm and the days that are fast approaching, friends. And furthermore, it's impossible to have peace with Yahweh Elohim, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ Yeshua. But here's the good news. You can start anew right now. You can repent of your sins and have the wages of your sins paid in full. Now is the time to repent and turn away from your sins and make right with the will of God. You see, the Bible declares that we don't know what tomorrow holds, so we must take action with the time that we have right now. Repentance is the first step. This means turning 180 degrees from your past thoughts, actions, and lifestyles that are in opposition to the Most High God. Because of Jesus Christ Yeshua and His once and for all sacrifice, you can be forgiven of your iniquity and every sin you've ever committed. Yahweh is a jealous God, but He's also rich in mercy. And tonight, if you're willing to admit your wrongs and repent, He's willing to show you that mercy right now, friends. The wages of our sin is death, but tonight we can receive the gift of God, which is eternal life. But as it says in Romans 6.23, only through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's no other way to come to God, folks. There's no other way to get salvation. You can't earn your salvation by good works. Fact is, Jesus Christ is the only way. Every other way, folks, leads to hell. There's no authentic way to the Father but Jesus Christ Yeshua. I'm so thankful that God sent His only begotten Son to die on the cross, a living sacrifice, and shed His sinless and perfect blood to pay the debt of our sins and the ability to be seen as blameless before God on that day of judgment. Let today be the beginning of your communion and peace with God as you're filled with the Holy Spirit and begin putting on the armor of God and growing into an intimate relationship with Him. It's the will of God that you don't perish, but rather that you repent and enter into a relationship with Him based on His terms. If you're not sure of what God's terms are, I want to challenge you to start reading your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, get one and learn firsthand what God expects from you. Christ is our only hope, friends, and my prayer is that you believe on Him tonight. That's the most important part of the show and by far the most important decision you will ever have to make in this life. Amen. It's been an interesting adventure tonight, and I hope you've all enjoyed this broadcast. If you ever miss a show or would like to go back and re-listen to an old one, every show is archived in high-quality streams on my website, fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com. That's the number 4-T-H-W-A-T-C-H-R-A-D-I-O.B-L-O-G-S-P-O-T.com. Fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com. There you'll find every broadcast dated and summarized for your convenience. Be sure to scroll all the way down on each page and click on the words Older Posts to be taken to more pages of archived shows. You can also find my shows broadcasted by the Fourth Watch Radio Network on Shoutcast, Spreaker, iTunes, or if you have an iPhone, iPad, or Android, 
you can download the Fourth Watch Radio Network app and enjoy easy streaming. For higher quality broadcasts, stay tuned in via fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com for all the latest shows. Like us on Facebook and feel free to add my personal page as well. If the Fourth Watch is ministered to you and you would like to help support this ministry, you can follow the link on our website. I bid you all a week filled with grace and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see you all next week. God bless and good night. You're listening to The Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on The Fourth Watch Radio Network.